Welcome to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon. As always, pleased to be here to in interview some of the brightest minds in politics. Today, I'm joined by Christina Sansoon Ramirez, who is a leading civil rights leader and former 2020 U.S. Senate candidate. She was named Hero of the New South by Southern Living Magazine, and her work has been featured on NPR, Vogue, The New York Times, and MTV. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm good. I'm not sick or unemployed like millions of people. So given the global circumstances, I'm doing okay, though I am in the state of Texas where we don't believe in science. And if you go outside, you can be really put at risk of getting COVID these days. And speaking of that, because I mean, you know, it is it is an absurd situation that we're in, um, particularly in the South and the Bible Belt, where governors are taking back the mask mandates and opening up their facilities to full capacity, which is completely anti-science at the time where we could be moving in a direction where we could be putting the pandemic behind us. Talk about what's going on in Texas with Governor Greg Abbott and your work to try to counter counteract the ignorance and the anti-science move by Governor Greg Abbott. Yeah, I mean, what's important, whether you live in Texas or not, is that we are a state of 29 million people, the second largest economy, and our governor has now lifted the mask mandate, even though only 7% of Texans, now that includes him, so maybe he's okay with it, have gotten a vaccine. Mm. And so now across Texas, uh, people are starting to not use masks again. Um, local governments have said in the big metro plexes that they're going to continue to mandate masks, but it's really unclear how that's going to work out, given that our own governor has said he's against it. Look, our governor, we know that just a few weeks ago, Texas was in the news nationally because we had a large-scale crisis that left millions of Texans without heat and water. Half of our state mm. didn't have clean drinking water. There's thousands today that still don't have clean drinking water. And a lot of that was because our governor has refused to prepare for the consequences of climate change. Mm. You know, two years ago, our governor was quoted as saying that he wasn't sure if climate change was real because he's not a scientist. And look, I don't expect my governor to be a scientist, but I do expect him to use common sense and listen to the experts and people that are scientists. But they, so when it comes to climate change, they're not willing to listen to the science. When it comes to the pandemic, they're not willing to listen to the science. He didn't listen to three of his four advisors, um, health experts, on lifting the mask mandate. And so it's it feels a little bit like instead of listening to the scientists, our governor is listening to the right-wing fringe and people like Alex Jones to decide what to do for a state of 29 million people. Yeah, and you know, when you, when you speak of the anti-science component of this, I'm reminded of an interview that Ted Cruz from your state, unfortunately, did with NPR, where he asserted his opinion on climate change because his parents were mathematicians or engineers and they insert he inserted himself to the detriment of 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 the movement for climate justice and for climate change what what does it say about and and I don't want to make this germane only to your state because we see this across the country but republicans and conservatives seem to use the excuse any excuse possible to position themselves against the science when the science is there to protect us right and in the case of Ted Cruz and climate change Ted Cruz going to to Cancun, Mexico, and Greg Abbott lifting these bans, this is literally detrimental to actual lives. But yet it seems as if they don't care. What are your thoughts on that? 
I don't think they care. You know, they are not motivated by public service or protecting the interests of ordinary Americans. They are motivated by power and profit. So when you talk about profit, when you talk about Ted Cruz and our governor, Greg Abbott, you're talking about some of the elected officials that are the highest funded, the most backed by oil and gas. They have a vested political interest and a financial incentive for their donors to deny the science on climate change. Um, when you talk about the mask mandate, this is a question of power. Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz, we know, have presidential ambitions. And so they are positioning themselves for 2024 on the backs of 29 million people in our lives and our safety so that they can appeal to the farthest right-wing fringe that are anti-science. In North Texas, they're getting ready to do a, 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 mask, a mask burning. And to me, it feels like a book burning where we're going to deny reality, deny the facts and data, um, and instead allow uh, a right-wing fanatical fringe to dictate how the rest of us live our lives. Mm. You ran for Senate in 2020, and um, I'm sure you faced, just because I know politics across the country, I'm sure you faced headwinds not only from the Republican Party, but also the Democratic establishment. Um, talk to me about your campaign in context of what you're fighting for and the language that you use. I'm listening to you now. And you're very you're, you're stating it very clearly, the absolute threat that this anti-science movement poses to the rest of the United States and the people of Texas. But that language is not always direct from the Democratic Party. Talk to me about your campaign and your push to help the people of Texas, as well as the, the impediment that you face from the Democratic establishment. Well, I am a progressive that's done social justice organizing in Texas for the last two decades, um, organizing undocumented workers for a decade, and then organizing young Latino voters across our state. And what I love about doing this kind of work in Texas is that generally there is no lefty choir to preach to. There are only mm -hmm. non-believers to convert. But what does run deeply through Texas is economic populism. And you have candidates like Bernie Sanders who are wildly popular across the political spectrum in our state because people are hungry and desperate for real economic change. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ran my Senate campaign. And I think that Democrats and progressives win when we actually use that economic populist message, when we talk about and call out the Republican Party for their hypocrisy in our own party at, at times. Yeah. Look, right now, what we need to be afraid of is that you have people like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, the list goes on and on saying that the Republican Party needs to become the party of the working class. And we may laugh at that, but they're not joking. They want to position themselves as that. But where we win is when we say, well, how can you say you represent the working class, but then not support raising the minimum wage to $15 right, right. an hour? And we have to call it the Democrats that also aren't willing to support it. How can you say you support the working class and then not support expanding the rights of unions and workers in this country? We have to call them out on the total hypocrisy because we as progressives do support working and middle-class people, and they simply want to kowtow to their big donors. And it's clear in every single policy decision they make and stand for. Which, which you know, the way you position that, actually, um, I understand it and I agree with it, but it bothers me. It bothers me because on so many occasions, we see 
or, or maybe it's perhaps the media promoting the anti-science portion of the Republican base, right? So we see videos of people burning masks. We see people uh, in Texas who are going to stores and refusing to wear a mask and they post videos of it. It gives the sentiment that some people unfortunately buy into and they attack Texas in general, right? Mm -hmm. They attack Texans in general as being anti-science and they get what they deserve in terms of who they elected. But it sounds like you have a different perspective because you're on the ground in Texas. What is the sentiment with regards to the science in terms of COVID-19, in terms of the anti-mask and the mask burnings? Is it is Are you finding it to be fighting a lost cause? Or do you feel like there's more people who actually do obey the science and want to agree with the science, but there's no leadership on the science? And there's no leadership in our state. What you have to remember about Texas is we've had one of the lowest voter turnouts of any state in the country. The Republican Party hasn't maintained power through a mandate. They've maintained power through a minority of voter participation, and that's the way they like it. They want as few mm. people voting as possible. And um, on top of that, you're going to see that in Texas, you know, people have an image of uh, I'm half white, half Mexican. People have an image of my white grandpa who wore a cowboy boots and a fringe jacket. But really what they should be envisioning when they think about Texas is a state that's majority young, brown, black, and urban. That's who Texas is today. And those are the exact voters they don't want having power or a say in the political process. But people are organizing in this state. And when you change Texas, it's not just going to change the political outcome of our state for an election cycle. You're going to change the political outcome and possibility of this country for a generation. And mm. that's why they are fighting tooth and nail to keep black and brown communities from not showing up at the polls. Let's let's dig into who they are, because I know with um, with anything, you're facing headwinds, not only from the Republican Party, but also from the establishment. Could you unpack who they are, who wants to maintain the minority uh, power control um, and with a few seconds that we have left? Well, in Texas, you're talking about 36 congressional seats, 38 electoral votes, the biggest battleground state in the country, the Republican Party that is largely held by a white, older minority of voters um, and establishment backed by big oil and gas, backed by big political powers in the state, financial interests. We are a state that has no limits on campaign contributions for people running for statewide office. Greg Abbott already has $40 million in the bank for his next election. So taking on this kind of political party in this state requires massive investment in young mm. voters, especially young voters of color. And I think it will happen in Texas, but it's going to happen not just because of the Democratic Party. It's going to happen because of the grassroots organizing and infrastructure that is built outside of the party to make the part the Democratic Party actually answer to the needs of working class communities, especially communities of color. Mm. Christina Sinsoon Ramirez, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. The pleasure is ours. Welcome back to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. And like it or not, you can find it here on YouTube. Joining us now, it's always a privilege and a pleasure to speak with Harvey J.K., who is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Professor Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. Ben, it's always a pleasure to see you, as, as I've said, whenever I do get to see you. And here we are. 
we always run into each other in these spaces, but it's it's because you consistently and persistently work on behalf of of the four freedoms, on behalf of people fighting for justice, equality, and on labor rights. And in this particular instance, we want to discuss what's happening with Amazon and the union efforts that's happening across the country, particularly in 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 Alabama. Uh, just give us an update on term in terms of what you're seeing and what you're following in terms of the unionizing that's happening in Amazon. Well, of course, right now we're in the middle of the voting period, which will come to an end on March 29th. And if the majority of workers who vote vote in favor of a union, then a union will be created that Amazon must recognize. Now, they don't want to recognize this union. They've spent in innumerable dollars, okay, massive dollars, and, and, and created a whole series of obstacles along the way to workers. In fact, even during this voting period, um, they've done some things of a questionable nature, but the union, the retail, wholesale, and department store union does not want to go to the National Labor Relations Board to mm. complain, to you know, to file a complaint, because if they do and the NLRB responds, they have to then postpone the entire vote and do it all over again. And that would be disastrous because, you know, this has taken a lot of patience on the part of workers, first of all, not just to put up with the stuff that Amazon puts them through, but also to wait through these many weeks. And though I'd like to say all the workers will will, will vote yes, that is not necessarily the case. Right. So where we are right now is it's a couple more weeks or more till March 29th when we'll find out who wins. My hope is the organizers are, are talking confidently, but we'll let's hope for the best on March 29th. We've both spoken with and about uh, Christian Smalls, one of the organizers who's taken it on the chin on behalf of labor. Uh, and one of the things that stood out from his conversations that I had with him was exactly what you just pointed out, that we can't count on all workers to side with the idea of creating a union. But in this case, Amazon has actually poured money into the anti-union movement with language and propaganda that undermines the work of laborers and the workers there at Amazon. Um, I want you to speak to that in general, but also this, this idea that, that, that workers need to vote on unions in the first place when historically we understand unions help labor. And, and now it's like this cat and mouse game of who can convince the most people possible whether or not a union should exist or not exist. Talk about right. that. Now, I will start off with, with the last point you made and say that the, the reports that I had were that as soon as this initiative began, um, Nearly 3,000 workers of the 5,850, 75 workers signed up in favor of the union. Now, if we had a card check system, by doing that, they would have had a union because that meant that the majority of workers were already endorsing the, the idea of a union. Right. But we don't have that. Okay? Right. So now let's come back to the anti-union efforts. First of all, they have hired what we would call union-busting law firms union-busting firms that begin a whole series of strategies and tactics to dissuade, obstruct, and literally scare the hell out of workers, right. telling them that the union dues is going to be too high or the fact that the, you don't know where the union dues is going to go. Um, and by the way, Alabama is a right in quotes, right to work state, which means that even if a union prevails, and once again, I want to say hopefully does, 
the fact is that workers will not be obligated to join the union right. as a right to work state. And by the way, that's known as free riding, because what will happen is mm -hmm. the union will likely, likely win certain kinds of demands, which we should address a bit later if you, okay? Mm -hmm. And the fact is that other workers will ride free on the union's efforts. And by the way, it also means that other enterprises in the Bessemer, Birmingham area, um, which are unionized, will, will feel less of the, if you like, free riding uh, taking place. But it also means that other workers will continue to, to enjoy the benefits that the workers themselves have secured. No, I mean, seriously speaking, the anti-union effort has been, has been really quite remarkable. So for example, let's face the fact that these Amazon workers have a 10-hour shift, sometimes longer, yeah. but this, a 10-hour shift. In the 10-hour shift, they are afforded two 30-minute breaks. Now, first thing to understand is that this is a massive warehouse. Um, I read that it's the equivalent of 15 football fields in, yeah. uh, in the it, through four stories, you might say, okay? In fact, it is four floors. Now, if you have a 30-minute break, given the size of that place, just getting to a break room or a yeah. bathroom is probably going to take you 10 minutes, which means it's 10 and 10. 20 minutes of your time is going to be taken up just to go pee, okay? Yeah. Which means you have 10 minutes to grab a bite to eat. So the massive reports of workers who bring in bottles to place alongside if they have a workstation to do mm. exactly that. that. And that's first of all to consider. The other thing is that when they get to the bathroom, they have to put up with anti-union propaganda, okay? I used to tell people, in my, my students, I say, you know, I'd like to put world maps over the, in the men's room over the, over the urinals. It, it'll help you absorb the image of the world. But in this case, what we're talking about is people who are trying to, in quotes, relieve themselves, are having to see anti-union propaganda. Maybe pictures of fellow workers saying, oh, we don't want a union. This, we, we, we work well as a team, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. So it, it's, it's a constant, constant annoyance. They also tried some interesting things. I say interesting, you know, sort of despicable things. For example, they wanted to have it that the workers would vote yes or no on the premises of the of the warehouse. Right. Which, by the way, is a decidedly anti-union uh, initiative to do right. that. Absolutely. Then, sorry. And, no, no, I'm agreeing with you. Absolutely. Yeah, and, Continue, please. Okay. And when they didn't get that, they then found their way to get the post office to install a letterbox on in the parking lot with a tent over it. Okay. Mm. On the assumption that this will afford, it'll make the workers think they have privacy to mail in their ballot because this is now a, a mail in uh, vote. When in fact, what it does is it brings the workers onto the, onto the premises once again of the Amazon property and they are compelled to vote there. And there is a lot of fear by this. And by the way, there can, you know, in the wake of Donald Trump, the truth is a hard thing sometimes to, to get hold of. And there are workers who are worried that in fact, they can stick if they stick it in the box there that for sure somebody's going to change the ballots okay mm. because it's on the property of amazon so i mean those are just examples of the kinds of things that that they're doing now let's i will make it clear amazon has a 100% record in terms of avoiding a union of breaking union efforts okay by way of all these diverse means some persuade by the way i haven't even mentioned they have a website they are constantly sending texts to the workers, okay, once again, there are things they are doing to scare the workers, okay? Now, admittedly, they are paying a $15 minimum wage, 
they're making it out as if nobody else is making $15 in the area, which isn't quite true. There are other enterprises. This is the Bessemer, Birmingham area. Right. And there's a history, by the way, in the past, from the 30s forward, of labor organizing and successful unions, mine workers, uh, steel workers, and the, it's the I got to get it straight, the mining, mill, and smelting workers, okay, was another integrated union. And, and one of the heritages of that is a record of interracial unionism. Although at the Amazon warehouse, it's 85% African-American workers. Or as the organizers have said, this is not only a labor question, this is a civil rights question. Yeah. And, the, and by the way, I was saying to my wife today, do you realize that when you walk into a place like an Amazon warehouse, you might as well be living in George Orwell's 1984, okay? Hmm. That's the kind of control and surveillance that takes place there. By the way, the organizers of the RWDSU, that's a mouthful, okay? They themselves are, in many cases, poultry workers at local poultry plants that are organized already, that are unionized. Mm. You know, I, I guess uh, with the few moments that we have left, I, I guess I wanna take it up to a 30,000 foot level because why the cat and mouse game? We understand the role that unions play, and I do understand the states that are collectively trying to make their states right to work as a result of Republicans, conservatives, ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Committee, trying to implement this across the country. But on the federal level, if we understand the role that unions play, why do we consistently go through this cat and mouse game where corporations have an inordinate amount of money to push back against a union when we understand in the majority, most people understand the role that a union will play in their own personal liberation? Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard to understand in part, but let's not forget that, let's not forget that this has been going on for decades. Professor Harvey K., it is always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you, feeling is mutual. The pleasure's ours.